0: If you've been with us, um, we've been slowly going through Luke chapter 9. Um, when I was last up here with you with you all, I shared with you the story, the amazing and beautiful story of, the, of Jesus' transfiguration on a mountain where three of his disciples were able to see him in his full glory. Um, and him having a conversation with Moses... And Elijah and how after that conversation um, well during that course of that conversation God made it known that Jesus was his son and that we are to listen to him after the conversation um, when you know that Elijah and Moses weren't there and only Jesus was standing there and If you were to put yourselves in the shoes of those disciples, those three disciples that was there, I'm sure it was just a glorious, beautiful, amazing experience. And they were just looking forward to coming down that mountain and telling all the other disciples and all the crowds about what they had just seen. So now that we've, where we're at now this morning in Luke chapter 9, we're going to be covering three Separate sections in in this chapter. In the first section, we're going to see how Jesus dealt with the disciples' inability to help a tormented boy. In the second section, we're going to to see uh, four more times how the disciples failed to understand what Jesus had been trying to teach and show them. And in the final section, we're going to be learning about how Four would be disciples failed to understand what a commitment to follow Jesus meant. So, as you can see, I titled this morning's message, The Valley of Need and the Road of Failure. What we're going to see, and what I hope you see um, throughout this, this morning, is that below every mountain of glory, There will be valleys of need and roads of failure. But what we'll also discover is that we have a Savior who knows how to make lemonade when he's given lemons. So before we get into God's Word, let's ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Lord Heavenly Father, Lord God, Creator of heaven and earth, we come before you now and humble adoration and ask you to speak to us this morning through your word and through this message, Lord. May we just remove all barriers or everything that's just on our minds for this next portion, this next time, and may we just completely focus on you and what you want to tell us, Lord. Holy Spirit, just soften hearts and soften minds so that everyone here will hear the message that they specifically need to hear. Lord, and fill this room with your spirit. We want to hear from you. We want to just fall in more in love with you. We want to know you more. Bless this time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so we left off in Luke chapter 9, verse 36. So we'll be picking up In verse 37, verse 37, Luke chapter 9, verse 37. And there the word of God says, The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Just then a man from the crowd crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, because he's my only child. A spirit seizes him, Suddenly he shrieks and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth, severely bruising him. It scarcely ever leaves him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation. How long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. Again, our story here begins the day after Peter, James, and John had witnessed Jesus transfigured into his full glory. But rather than having an i told you so at kind of attitude Jesus resumes the work that God had called him to do and what was that to heal to teach and to save well Luke tells us that when our lord and his three disciples came down from the mountain that he was met by a large crowd and in that large crowd one voice in particular stood Above everybody else, it was a desperate father, a pleading father, begging for help for his son, his only child, who was a victim of epileptic seizures. But this wasn't the normal kind of epileptic seizures that could be medically treated. Rather, these epileptic seizures were caused by demonic possession. Now, it's in every, if you're a father here, you all know this, but it's in every father's nature to protect his children from harm when they're in pain, when they're hurting, or when someone is trying to hurt them. And it's a terrible feeling to, to see them when they're suffering and not be able to do anything about it to see them suffer it's horrible to have that helpless feeling so you can imagine that it just must have been heartbreaking for that father to see his precious boy his one and only son seized with demonic convulsions without warning to hear the shrieks to see the foam coming out of his mouth, and then also see the bruises it left him when the demon was struggling to leave. Now, it appears from what it says in verse 40 that this distraught father had previously gone to the disciples for help, but these disciples weren't able to drive out these demons or the demons. Now, Some of you may be asking, why weren't these disciples able to help this tormented boy? Didn't they just have a successful preaching, healing, and exercising mission mission tour? Well, yes. But perhaps they had become professional in their ministry. Perhaps their mindset began to change. Oh, I've got this all figured out. I know what's going on. I've done this before. It's all, you know, I've seen this and done that. They began to think their, their view of, of that whole situation began to change like if it was just a normal thing for them. Maybe they thought they could count on a spirit-filled ministry without constant spiritual exercise. Or perhaps... They just began to take, take things for granted. Regardless of the reason, the Lord was grieved by this entire spectacle. <clears throat> so without calling anyone in particular, he said, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Now this may have been addressed to his disciples. It could have been addressed to the people or even the father or maybe all combined. We're not really sure again who he was referring to, but it was clear that they were all helpless in the face of of that boy's human need, in spite of the fact in spite of the fact that they could draw from his infinite resources of power. This of course frustrated Jesus and was why he rhetorically asked how long will i be with you and put up with you the answer we now know was that he'd have to endure this burden all the way to the cross all the way to his death and then to his glory nevertheless despite feeling frustrated Jesus did not lose his compassion for those who needed him. So he told the desperate father, Bring your son here. And as the boy was approaching, once again the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. But Jesus, our Lord and Savior, was unimpressed by this display of power by this evil spirit. Jesus immediately took charge and commanded the demon to depart. He then took the boy who was now in control of his life and gave him back to his father. The crowd that was there was astonished. They immediately recognized that God had worked a miracle and saw it as a display of god's of the greatness of god they might have been they might have been unbelieving and, re, and and rebellious but they knew the power of god at work when they saw it why because this was a god-sized work that no one else did. no medical professionals at the time no the witch doctors at the time Gods, no other Could do that, could heal that boy. Acts 9 19, 11, the follow the followers of the goddess Artemis with her greatness and magnificence would be destroyed. In 2 Peter 1:6, Peter testifies to the greatness of Christ, his majesty. These are the only two other places in the New Testament where the Greek word for greatness occurs. Jesus' greatness or majesty in healing brought amazement to the people. He had unique power that no one else had. And what kind of power was that? It was a God-given power. Now as I studied this passage, there were three things that stood out to me. First of all, the first thing that stood out was that at the bottom of every mountain of glory is a valley of human need. When we're in those mountaintops experiencing the glory of God, I think we can all agree that we just want to stay there. We want to stay there and just bask in that glory and we just want to forget about everything else. We just want to live there forever and never leave. The thing is, the Lord wants us to come down and continue with a mission that he's called us to do, that he's called you to do. You're not meant to be in that mountaintop forever. You see, it's there in the valley of human need that God wants us to be because there it's there in those valleys that he works powerfully through us and is the most glorified when he is working through us when he is working in us and through us ministering to those in need when we're able to share what god has shown us during those mountaintops and mountaintops and to tell others that those valleys don't last forever there are mountaintops that they can experience too if they just wander the second doubt is that this is that a successful ministry isn't always permanent although the gifts and calling of, of God are irrevocable their effectiveness isn't automatic in Matthew 17, 21, Jesus said that their failure was due to a lack of prayer and fasting. In other words, the authority is given, the power is present, but it won't operate without your participating, without you participating in prayer and fasting. Now keep in mind that it isn't prayer and fasting that make us worthier to cast out demons. The idea here is that prayer and fasting draws closer to the heart of God and puts us more in line with his power. Therefore, although you may have been at one time one of the most gifted evangelists, one of the most gifted preachers, one of the most gifted teachers or Missionaries, your gift that he's given you will lose its effectiveness if you're not maintaining it by spending time in the presence of God. You see, the more time you spend with him, the more he'll rekindle the gifts that are in you. Some translations will say, "Will fan the flame; it'll just get hotter." The more you you spend time in praying, helping with others, he wants to powerfully in you too, and he wants to fan that uh, the, the brightness, the fire of the spirit that's in you. And third, the third thing that set out is that there isn't a problem out there that Jesus can't handle. No matter how big your problem may seem, it's nothing Jesus can't handle. Sure, although He wants us to draw upon His infinite resources of power, we know that we can come to Him for anything that we think is too big for us to handle our Heavenly Father, wants us to take our burdens to Him in Jesus' name and leave them at His feet. Why? Because He cares and loves us so much. He wants us to... Wants to again, if you're a parent, you know when it comes to children and they have issues or problems, you just want to take it away. Take away that pain, and you're like, son, it's okay. I, I'll, I'll just give it to me. I'll I'll take it. I've handled it before, and I'll handle it again. You just don't want you just, you don't want to see your child go through that that suffering and or deal with these burdens. I was having a conversation with my son before we got here about addiction and and how I pray that he'll never have to deal with that that you'll never have to suffer with addictions, that in my own experience, it's an ugly monster, it's an ugly demon that takes, has a grip on you and won't let go. And I don't want that for my worst enemy, that power of addiction. And so, you know, I told them that I, uh, if he ever did, I would do everything. I would want to just take, it, take it to myself because I know how to handle it now. I know what I need to do. But it's just more difficult when it's someone who is new and doesn't know how to handle, the, again, those addictions, those, those, those demons. But again, what I'm saying here is that we ought to take our burdens to Jesus. Why? Because he loves us. He cares for us. We, many times, try to solve our own problems, our own way, and end up in a worse than when we start. If we would only say, Lord, I give you this problem. I give this problem to you. You're the only one who can solve this. You're the only one who can heal me and help me to deliver me and to deliver me that ought to be our heart and we that should be what we that should be the cry of our hearts when we have these burdens but again many times we just feel like well we can handle this we can deal with this on our own i just got to you know i got to just try to stop cold turkey or i've got to just work more i've got to make more money or i've whatever it is all kinds of reasons trying to take care of these burdens on your own Again, from experience, you can't. You need the Lord. Only He can take care of it. Only He can take it on, and He will heal you, and He will deliver you. Well, although this exorcism had astonished astonished the crowd and had caused them to marvel, it seems that it had little effect on our Lord. In the next we're about to read. He once again turns his attention back to his back to his disciples. In the next few paragraphs, we're about to read. We're going to be looking at four brief scenes where Luke records failures of Jesus' disciples. So let's go to verse forty-three, and uh, I ask you to read silently as I read these this passage aloud and they were all astonished at the greatness of god while everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing he told his disciples let these words sink in the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men but they did not understand this statement it was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it an argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. Their inner thoughts took a little child and had a hand to him. He told them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow us. Don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself, And on the way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, keep in mind, they were also known as the sons of thunder. Um, When they saw this, the Lord, uh, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuke them, and they went to another village. It should be obvious by now that the disciples, like all of us, were far from perfect. Only Jesus was perfect, and these disciples, as we just read, had major flaws. They struggled with many of the thoughts and feelings we all do, and as I mentioned a minute ago, what we see here are four failures of the disciples. First, even when he tried to get them to pay attention, let these words sink in, off, he was offering yet another prediction of his betrayal and death. Even then, they failed to understand. They didn't get it. It, it, it just it didn't connect. The, the words and what was actually going to happen, it just didn't, there was no connection there. In this instance, however, Luke recorded that it was concealed from them so they couldn't grasp it. But here's the thing. This was a divine concealment. Had they understood what Jesus was, was telling them, they may have lost all motivation or they may have tried to take steps to prevent it. After all these things happened, after his death and resurrection, they would recall these predictions, and they would then understand that his death was no accident, and that he was always, always in control. In the second of these four scenes of, the, of, of failure, Luke recorded an argument between the disciples over who was the greatest of them. Now, besides being particularly inappropriate right after Jesus had predicted his own suffering and death, their behavior displayed an appalling lack of humility and an unsavory exhibition of hubris. Jesus knowing not just the content of the argument, but what they were thinking in their inner thoughts, confronted this outrageousness by just simply taking a child and, ha- and ha- had him stand right next to him. His point here was not that the disciples are to be as a, as a child or to behave like a child, to be like that child, but the disciples are to welcome this little child, that is, to serve and honor this child. His point was that the disciples must not be too proud and self-important to refuse to act as a servant to a child. seen many people who serve in ministry who say yeah I'm too good for that I'm better than that I can I I don't need to clean toilets so I don't need to to make coffee I you know I'm a really important person I don't need to serve in children's ministry I don't need to serve in youth I just want to you know My gift and calling right now is just to be with the adults and to preach gospel and, uh, you know, if you're unable to even serve little children, how will you have a heart to serve adults who are hurting, who are hurting inside like little children or suffering? because of pain emotional physical pain who are seeking answers like that of a child he concluded this lesson with the principle of reversal the way to greatness in God's economy is to be the least important in this present economy now I think it's interesting that the disciples started arguing about their greatness right after Jesus, right after they had failed to drive out the demon from that boy. It's I think again, I think it's rather interesting because such is human nature. The moment someone messes up, there's always someone there to say, look, I didn't mess up. I must be a better person. You start to, start to, I guess, negotiate or work out who's a better person, who's, who's smarter, who's more wiser. It's just, when it comes to competition, uh, people will do some pretty crazy things or say some pretty crazy things. You can always tell when a person is aware of his shortcomings, by telling you how great he is, by boasting about himself, by telling, giving you his entire resume. A person who is truly great never has to talk about it and never has to prove it. I don't have to sit here and give you my entire resume about everything that I've done I hope and pray that just me being up here and sharing you'll be able to see what the Lord has done in my life in the life of my family um, just a great just how great God has just shaped my life I don't need to boast about myself all I want to do is just boast about Jesus and that should be your heart too. Is not to build yourself up, but to build each other up. Just to just share what God has done in your lives. Let them know. Let me know. Let others know. We want to hear about it. Because we just want to with you. We want to glory in God with you. We want to praise him for his goodness and wonderful love and mercy and I love hearing stories like that. Again, that person doesn't have to talk about it or prove it. All he wants to do is lift the other person up. In the third scene of uh, the disciples' failure, Luke records how an indignant disciple responded to what Jesus had just said. John informed the Lord that they had seen someone who they didn't recognize driving out demon, driving out demons in Jesus' name. With apparently no sense of irony that this unnamed individual was apparently able to accomplish what Jesus, what Jesus' own disciples had recently failed to do, and that it was inherently good, a good thing to cast out demons, regardless of who was doing it, John goes on to say, we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow us. The failure here should be obvious. To stop the doing of good in order to pr- preserve that work for the right people is not merely inefficient it's misguided. Jesus corrected John and explained, whoever is not against you is for you. If the ministry is good, right, and true, the work should be encouraged, not hindered, regardless of who gets the credit. The fourth And final scene of the disciples' failure happened in Samaria. In this instant, as Jesus was beginning his journey to Jerusalem, he sent messengers ahead of himself. On the way, they entered a village of the Samaritans and made preparations for him in order to engage in ministry there. However, when Jesus entered the village, the people there did not welcome him nor they we receptive to the idea that he was going to go to jerusalem the first inclination of james and john for this affront was excessive retaliation they wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume them well upon hearing this jesus rebuke was swift and pointed. This is not the way his followers behave. This sort of retaliation is the opposite of the spirit and intent of Jesus' mission. The lesson for these disciples was this. Those who reject Christ are not the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're the mission field. Those are the ones that need to be reached. Those are the ones that we need to go out there and preach the kingdom of God to, to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ, the salvation He offers. that He had died on the cross for their sins and that they can receive eternal life if they just accept Him as their Lord and Savior. They're not the enemy. They're the mission field. And this, again, applies even today to to those in, um, uh, in the Middle East, maybe you know, Muslims, they're not the enemy. They're the mission field. You know, we have the media out there you know, puts this narrative out that they're evil and, well, and, and they do a lot of evil things, but God still loves them, still loves them. God died for them. Jesus died for them. The worst person in this world, as long as they're breathing, still has an opportunity to receive Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins. No one is irredeemable. They're the mission field. We need to go out and share the message regardless of what they believe, what kind of lifestyle they have, what they look like. We need to be servants. We need to be servants in that mission field. We must also be careful about having these same kinds of attitudes towards our brothers and sisters from other denominations. I don't think any of us want Jesus to tell us, leave them alone. If they're carrying out our mission in our name and not doing anything to oppose us, then they're part of us too. They just belong to to another flock that we have never met. Yes, Jesus is the greatest. He does God-sized work. However, he calls you to greatness in another way. See, even if you're doing child-sized work, then you're still called great. He still calls you great. Just don't try to exclude others from the same greatness. Greatness isn't a race with winners and losers. It's not a fight where one person stands above the other. It's not a position to see who's the greatest. Greatness is open to all of us if we humble ourselves in service, if we humble ourselves in ministry, if we humble ourselves in serving one another. So with the time we have left, we'll be closing out this chapter with a lesson that teaches that commitment and dedication to Jesus and his mission leave no room for other commitments or for thinking about what might have been So for one last time this morning, let's turn back to our Bibles and read, finish out the chapter here. And let's pick up again in verse 57, Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first let me go bury my father. But he told him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to at my house but Jesus said to him no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God these verses here are addressed to potential disciples in each one of these instances the term follow is prominent here we meet three would be disciples who encounter Jesus and illustrate three of the main hindrances to wholehearted discipleship. In the first encounter, the would-be disciple was convinced that he wanted to follow Jesus everywhere, and he wanted to follow Jesus anywhere and everywhere, but he was reminded of the cost. You see, this man, this would-be disciple, did not wait to be called but impetuously offered himself. He was self-confident, unduly eager, and unmindful of the cost. He didn't know the meaning of what he was saying. He didn't know what the meaning of what he said. So instead of giving in to his request, and, or Jesus saying, okay, come on, just, just follow me. It's okay, we'll figure it out. Lord warned him to count the cost before committing to follow him. He did not, uh, speaking of Jesus, he did not have a resting place as secure as the fox's den or the bird's nest. He owned nothing; he had he had no assurance, of a place to sleep. Jesus wanted him to understand that following him. Would mean forsaking the comforts and conveniences of life. And for some, this may be hard, but yes, it may even mean giving up those things that most men, that most Americans would consider to be the, their inalienable rights life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. We don't hear from this man again. Assume that he was unwilling to cut the emotion, that he was unwilling to cut the emotional and physical strings he depended on for security to follow the Son of God. Now there may be some of you who are just like this man, a would-be disciple that's down to follow Jesus anywhere and everywhere. this is you, then I want you to also carefully examine what following him means. Have you counted the cost? Do you realize that what you're setting yourself up for? Are you ready to cut past ties and depend absolutely on the commitment to God? What do you really mean? You say, I will follow you wherever you go. Are you following to see the miracles, be where the action is, and gain God's blessing? Or are you following because you're devoted to the mission and you're ready to take up the cross? You see, making a commitment to Jesus is committing yourself. To Jesus' dedication to the Father's mission, to preach, to heal and to save. In Isaiah 52:7 it says, "How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald, Who proclaims peace, who brings good news, that brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation." Here's an illustration, again, to to further my point at this point here. A hog and a hen sharing the same barnyard heard about a church's program to feed the hungry. The hog and the hen discussed how they could help. The hen said, I've got it. We'll provide bacon and eggs for the church to feed the hungry. The hog thought about it, thought about the suggestion and said, there's one problem. With your bacon and egg solution. For you, it only requires contribution, but for me, it will mean total commitment. That's the cost of true discipleship. In the second encounter, the would-be disciple is actually called by Jesus. Jesus actually looks at him and says, follow me. Imagine Savior of the world, God the Son, who was there at the beginning of creation, looking at you, speaking to you, and telling you, "Follow me." But the thing is, this man, this would-be disciple, revealed that he had misplaced priorities. Can you imagine Jesus telling you that to follow him. And you tell him, well, let me bury my father. Wow, that's, it's just mind-blowing when, when I, the more I think about it. The request for a delay to bury my father didn't mean that he needed to attend a funeral, but that he needed to wait until his father died. In other words, he was willing to commit to the uncertain future, but not the present concrete moment. It's like saying this, I promise to do it later, but just not now. This explains Jesus' response. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the kingdom of God. Now, although it may sound like it, Jesus wasn't making a callous demand of a grieving son. See, it's absolutely fine and even proper for this man to show respect for a dead or dying father. There's nothing wrong with going to see a loved one, a relative, in my case, my mother, as they spent their last breaths in a hospital. Nothing wrong with that. The issue here was that he was allowing something else to take precedence over Christ's call. And when anyone or anything is allowed to rival Christ, then it becomes sinful. When you put that person, a mom or dad, or whoever it may be above Christ, then yes, it's a sin. Had I had no one to come and cover, or share, or be here to, to minister to you all, I wouldn't have gone. I wouldn't have been able to, to, to be there. I would have been here. This is where my priority is. This is where God has called me to do. As and callous as that sounds, this is where the Lord has me. This is where He wants me to be. Thank goodness, though, that you know we have good men here that are willing to step up. And that's amazing. That's beautiful. That, that allowed me, again, to, to go out there and, and share her last moments, uh, for me to share her last moments with, with, her, with her. But again, I'm, as much as I love my mother, as much as I love my kids, my wife, they can't rival. They can't be, take precedence over Christ. He, ought to, he is to be number one. He is number one in my life. Unfortunately, this man had something else to do. This lured him away from a pathway of unreserved discipleship. As believers, we need to understand that commitment to Jesus Christ takes precedence over all commitments that earthly traditions will place you on. We mustn't forget that our principal occupation is, as Mark sixteen fifteen says, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Yes, caring for parents in their final days is important, but you're not the only one who can do that. You're the o- you are the only one to answer the call that Jesus gives you. When he calls you, you must answer here and now and follow immediately wherever he leads. If he calls you, if he was to step right in front of you right now and say, follow me, would you say, well, I got to take care of a few things first. I got to, parents are well, they're sick. Or I'm waiting for this or that to happen. Would that be your response? Yeah. Are you willing to follow immediately wherever he leads? This means letting go of all potential personal, be- put up eternal, lo- and, to put up eternal lo- and to put up eternal loyalties and commitments above all other loyalties, and temporal commitments. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter three, verses one and two. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. On this subject, Warren Risby wrote, we should should love Christ so much that our love for our family would look like hatred in comparison. Now in the third And final encounter, the would-be disciple apparently just wanted to go and say goodbye to his family. Lord, I, I won't be long. I'm not looking as far into the future as that man was. I just want to run home real quick and let my parents know where I'm going. And then I will come and follow you. Have you ever said that at one time or another? Jesus knew, however, that if he were to go back home, his commitment to follow the Lord would weaken and that he would be drawn back to the body he loved. Again, there's nothing wrong with a loving farewell to going to mom and dad, brother and sister, and I'm off to the mission field. I'm a Christian now. The Lord has called me to do this or to do that. But if it gets in the way of obedience, then it becomes sin. Then it becomes a problem. So using the image of a plowman, Jesus admonishes this would-be disciple to see that a plowman, after putting his hand to the plow, cannot look back. If he wants to be a good worker, if he wants to be a good plowman, He must look forward to the task ahead. He must keep his eyes on what's ahead of him. His point here was that the the disciple cannot be looking back to his old life, old friends, old habits, and be committed to Christ. You just can't do that. You can't dwell on all that stuff. You can't have one foot in and one foot out and keep looking back and saying, Oh, man, just... It doesn't work that way. You're either all in and looking straight ahead, looking at G- keeping your eyes on the cross, keeping your eyes on Jesus, on what he's called you to do. This applies to us as well when we make a commitment to follow Christ. As Christians, we cannot follow Christ by looking back because the harvest is ripe and the Lord is looking for committed plowmen. We must focus on serving him as we move ahead. At his command. We're told in Hebrews 12.1. Let us lay aside every hindrance and sin. So that, uh, that so easily ensnares us. Let's run within the race that lies before us. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't start the work and then find something else with more importance. Even for a minute. The call to, the, the call to follow Jesus Is a call without excuse, without delay. Once you answer the call, you have a permanent job. No looking back. No looking back. And so what we see here are the three cardinal hindrances to discipleship illustrated in the experience of these men. Number one, material comforts number two, a job or an occupation, and number three, family and friends. Thus, the overall lesson here can be summarized with this principle. Christ must reign in the heart without rival. All other, ro- all other loves and all other loyalties must be secondary. That would appear that Jesus taught his disciples and the multi- what it would appear that what Jesus taught his disciples and the multitudes had done them little good they lacked power love and discipline and this grieved his heart this grieved Jesus if we today lack these spiritual essentials we will never truly be his disciples but they are available to us from the Lord. Paul told Timothy in Second in Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, For God did not give us a, a spirit of timidity, but a power of love and of self-discipline. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, are you a joy to Christ or are you breaking his heart? So, as I conclude this morning, Luke chapter 9 forces us, forces you to measure your own commitment to God. Is it a cross carrying commitment? Is it a world sacrificing commitment? Is it a commitment that sends you out into the mission among the least of the world's population? Are you prepared to accept rejection from the world as you minister to the needy of the world? Are you ready to reject world loyalties as close as mom and dad in order to follow Jesus? Down in, well, let me rephrase that. The bottom of every mountain, top of glory. The valley of need. And there's a road of failure, but doesn't mean that You can be there to minister to those in need and we can learn the failures of the disciples and these three individuals, these would-be disciples. It's important, again, that we understand these principles, that we understand what Jesus is trying to teach us, teach us here to take them out and to apply it. If you're watching, listening, if you're here, And if you've counted the cost and are ready to commit to Jesus, wherever you're at, I want you to close your eyes and bow your head. And I want to lead you in a prayer to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, to make that commitment to Him. Again, wherever you're at, pray this with all sincerity, with all your heart. Lord, I admit I'm a sinner. and that my sins have separated me from you. I come to you now and ask for forgiveness. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you are the son of God. I confess you now as my Lord and my savior. leave all my sins all my past, present and future sins sins at the cross and ask you to wash me clean thank you for what you did I accept that forgiveness I accept you I believe in you fill me now with your spirit so that I may walk with you that I may know you more I may fall more in love with you teach me about you more thank you God for sending Jesus thank you for loving me enough to send your only son to die for me I pray this In the name of your glorious Son, Jesus Christ.